0: I'm sure many of us who are listening to this address, this talk, this sermon uh, on a Sunday morning at Park Church or, or looking at it on YouTube or listening to it on YouTube or whatever later on in the week, I'm sure many of us, especially those of us who are resident in Lanarkshire or in Glasgow or those parts of Scotland that are now in semi quarantine, well, we're perhaps a bit down in the dumps. Um, we had hoped. Um, that things would continue to open up. Some of us, not certainly myself, but some of us, I think, honestly believe that what took place earlier on in the year with the lockdown would somehow be a cure for COVID-19 and that life would be able to return to normal. Um, And and if we felt like that, then obviously we're going to be very disappointed because that's not the case. Look at the example of New Zealand that was able to effectively almost cut itself off from everybody. And yet somehow, and I'm not sure how that happened, but somehow it got back into the country. And although the outbreak was controlled, nonetheless, COVID-19 reappeared and people were affected. Indeed, I believe somebody died from it. And so dealing with the virus is a long-term battle and until a vaccine is found, and again there's questions now about that because there's been a delay once again, it's had to be postponed, the the working on it, because it's impacted someone who has become ill. Um, Because of all of that, the chances of a vaccine happening, a safe vaccine happening soon is not very likely. So this is going to be a long-term thing, into the autumn and into the winter. That's serious, no point saying otherwise. And as I say, if we'd hoped things would suddenly change, we're in for a big disappointment. However, that is life. That is the life we're living. We may well feel a bit like the Israelites we saw last Sunday when we were looking at the story of Gideon in the book of Judges. We saw in chapter 6 that they were faced with what could have appeared to be very gloomy and overwhelming circumstances. The Midianites, we were told, were there on the periphery of the territory of Israel, um, but they had come in, they had invaded the land of Israel, and we're told in chapter 6 and verse 2 that because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. And last Sunday, we spent some time thinking about that, how things can appear to almost overwhelm us, not just this present situation to do with the virus, but other circumstances, domestic affairs, situations within our family or within our working life, or global affairs and the issues to do with, for instance, Brexit or the independence issue or, or anything else, global warming. All these things, both large and small, both macro and micro, can Appear to almost overwhelm us and to crush us down. That's certainly how the Israelites faced. And as I say, some of you, particularly this morning, may feel like that. It's just going to crowd you in so that metaphorically you're retreating into the hills and into the camps and the clefts and the caves and the strongholds that were there in the mountains where the Israelites fled to because of the overwhelming amount of their enemy but God heard their cry. We read that Midian so impoverished that Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help and God heard their cry. And last Sunday, we spent some time thinking about Gideon. And so let's turn to the, the, the remainder of that story in, in Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7. And let's pick up from the story. Judges chapter 7, reading from verse 1. Early in the morning, Gideon and all his men camped at the spring of Harrod, The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, There are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. If I say, This one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, This one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, Separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the three hundred who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. At first reading of this story, well, it just seems, let's be honest, downright odd. You would think faced with these Midianites and all the rest of the enemies who came into the land, who basically took over, were told that they were camped in the valley near the hill of Mora, that faced with these enemies, Israel and the armies of Israel needed to be as large and as well equipped uh, as possible. And so we're told that there was a large number 22,000, 30,000, 30, really, effectively, um, were gathered for battle. And uh, 32,000, rather, were gathered for battle. And you would think, well, the more the merrier. The bigger the army, the stronger you're going to be. It it, it makes sense to have more. But, of course, the God that we come before is the God who said, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts, as high as the mountains are above. So my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways of seeing things, of understanding things, are completely different. They're on a completely different plane literally up, not just in the mountains, but in the heavens, in the courts of heaven, where God's knowledge and God's wisdom and God's strategies are revealed. And so from a human viewpoint, what might appear to be foolishness in God's understanding and scheme of things is profoundly wise. Of course, we see that supremely in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so here we see God's wisdom being revealed, which is contrary to what human wisdom would have to say. And God, of course, has a purpose in that. Look what he says. He says, um, I cannot deliver Midian, verse 2, into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now, of course, again, we saw last Sunday that the reason why Israel was in this state of, of, of almost perpetual invasion, was because they had done that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's that's a, a refrain continually in the book of Judges. Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They became cocky. They became self-confident. They thought that the land that they had and the things that they had and the way they lived their life was because, well, they were better or more special or they had achieved so much because of their own strength or ability. And they lost sight of God and sat and worshipping God we read from chapter 6, they were worshipping created things, statues, temples, um, totem poles, up dedicated to the gods of nature, worshipping created things rather than the creator. And when they did that, God literally pulled the rug from underneath them. That was why they were the mess they were in. And so anything Which caused God's people to think, look what we have, look what we've done. It's us, it's our ability, it's our our efforts, our our money, our scheming, our planning, our work. Any of that where we lose sight of who God is and our dependence upon God, well, He will not put up with that forever. And so it's important here. God says to Gideon that Israel remembers and recognizes and learns that it's not by their might nor by their power, but by the Spirit of God that this victory is going to be achieved. And he does that by whittling down the army. He's got strategic downsizing. Interesting, those who are fearful, we're told, those who tremble with fear, have to turn back. Now, let's be honest, we're all, of course, fearful at times. All of us, uh, the, the best of us, even the most seemingly confident of us, in fact, sometimes those who seem to be very cocky and confident, actually, are filled with all sorts of fears that just cover up better and, and, and try to, to not reveal it by being overcompensating in other ways. We all have concerns. We can all be fearful. And and, and that's, that's part of who we are. In a sense, it's part of our God-given nature because we've been made in the image of God, yes, but we've been made as human beings to fear God, to have a right awe of who he is, and to be aware that as human beings, just to come into God's presence, well, that is a fearful thing. He is a consuming fire. His wrath burns against sin, and so rightly, we should have a fear of him. But of course, the majority of humanity um, has no recognition of him has no desire to acknowledge him as God, and so that built-in nature to have fear then becomes not a fear of God, but a fear of other people, a fear of situations, a fear of circumstances, and dare I say, a fear of COVID-19. And the fear here has gripped them. Again, it's not just a a passing concern. You know, we're going to the dentist and we think, oh dear, what we are going to get done today? It's not that. Or a right concern about what might happen to do with the health of a loved one or, or anything else. This is a fear that actually grips them. We notice it says anyone who trembles with fear, it actually has a physical impact. Now, of course, there are many people in the medical profession, psychologists and psychiatrists and all the rest of it will say that many physical symptoms, many physical illnesses and ailments are either caused or certainly made worse because of people's inner state. Their, their fears, their concerns, their emotional insecurities, things from the past, a whole host of things We're complex beings. And these things impact on our physical well-being. Interesting, I was reading a survey recently that was saying that even as far as COVID-19 is concerned, because the end of the day, it's not the actual virus that kills people or causes people to be very ill, it's their body's reaction to it. And there is some suggestion that at least in some of the circumstances where people have become very, and perhaps they have even died. It's not just that they have had physical frailties, but they actually have emotional or other struggles in their life, so they're more vulnerable to the virus and more vulnerable to reacting in a way which is dangerous or even deadly for them. God's love casts out all fear. The Bible tells us. Jesus, remember in the boat with the disciples, and the storms and the waters that were about to overwhelm them. And what did Jesus do? Yes, he commanded the winds and the waves to be silent, to be still, and they did. But he also said, do not be afraid. Why do you fear? The disciples locked into that upper room again in a locked down situation. And Jesus stands amongst them. And in many ways, the disciples were quite right to be fearful because they had let Jesus down big time. And yet the very first thing that Jesus said to them was, peace, I leave with you, I give to you. He, he brings God's peace, God's hope, God's help into the realities of life and into our fears. But these people were filled with fear. It crippled them. It impacted upon them. They actually weren't going to be much good in the battle. Probably the first sign of trouble, they would have run away. And so they had to be removed. 22,000 men left. And can I say quite solemnly, but quite seriously and strongly, that especially when it comes to leadership within the church, not just congregationally, but denominationally and nationally, those who lead the church, those who are going to be in the front line of battle, those who are going to be involved in leading God's people on, yes, they can have concerns, yes, sometimes they can be thinking, well, Flip, what's going to happen next, and all the rest of it, but they cannot be people who are filled with a spirit of fear. That is contrary to those who are filled with the Holy Spirit, and know that even in their weakness, even in the challenges, even in the concerns that they have, God's strength, God's peace, God's help and God's hope is greater and will bring the victory. And so those who lead must be men and women who are not filled with fear and are not impacted by the circumstances that may seem very daunting round about them. And so these 22,000 leave, but the Lord says that's still too many take them down to the water and again you can read this part of the story and think well what's all this about after they'll go to get a drink you know and how they do it doesn't seem to really matter and there will be some who would say well no it didn't really matter at the end of the day God was determined there was only going to be a small group turns out there was only 300 left he was determined in that and actually it was quite arbitrary as to how he selected these 300 I I wouldn't agree with that the same way as fear And its impact the virus of fear impacting these people had to be removed from the leadership on the army of God so here there is a difference between those who actually stuck their faces in the water right in and souped up and those who took the water up in their hands and drank from it like this what's the difference well if your face is in a bucket of water you're hardly able to see, or indeed to discern, or to sense, or to hear anything else. You, you're literally in the water. Your face is right in, sucking up. You're in a very vulnerable, you're in a prostrate situation, lying right down. Whereas those on the knees bringing the water up to them, they're still able to look about, to sense, to hear, to be aware, ready to react suddenly if they have to. And I think that's a very important picture here. Those 300 who drank for cupped hands, there's a sign that they were more alert, more aware of the potential of a sudden attack, more conscious of, yes, perhaps the vulnerability of their position, but also more conscious of their ability to respond at a moment's notice to anything else that might happen. And that again is important especially amongst those who lead the Church of God, or who are involved in whatever way, in front-line ministry, and I don't just mean ministers, those who are paid to do the job, but Christians who are active and involved in things, perhaps in business, or in the NHS, or or in in community involvement, or whatever else. Christians who are on the front line, and who are actually, in a sense, advancing into enemy territory, territory that is outside the confines of the Church, for instance. It's important that such people, People are alert, are spiritually alert. There are commentators who have said, of course, this is a picture and a pointer towards those who are prayerful. Who, who, who are spiritually in tune with God, who are listening to his strategies and his planning and his program, and therefore more able to respond to what's happening round about, rather than perhaps other believers, genuine, perhaps decent souls, but who are really just kind of, with well, their heads in the bucket of water, and they're just caught up with themselves and their own needs. That, again, can't be the case for those who are going to be the front line of God's army, the church of God. They have to be those who are alert, those who are prayerful. But watching and waiting and looking, listening, sensing, all of that has to be the hallmark of those who would lead God's people on, especially during these challenging times. And so Gideon is left with the 300, which isn't very many compared to the 32,000 that he had originally. And it just seems nonsense. It seems just complete. You know, And you're an idiot, Gideon but God was in charge. And Gideon, a man who by nature was cautious himself, a man who by nature was fearful a bit, and we see that from chapter 6, and yet he had learned what it was to trust God and to know God, that his ways may not be our ways, his thoughts may not be our thoughts, but they can be trusted. And so that's what happens. Let's read on in the story. Um, let's pick up in verse um, 8, or the second part of verse 8. Now, the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura, and listen to what they are saying, and afterwards you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura his servant went down to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. And Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying, a round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the midnight camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. And when Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped and returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up, the Lord has given the midnight camp into your hands. So God has his strategic plans to downsize the army. He's done that. But God also has his strategic insight. I'm sure most, most of us are well aware of the story of Bletchley Park and the Enigma Code. If we weren't even up to uh, a few years ago, we may have watched or seen the film that told the story, at least in part, of what went on there of how the Allies, thankfully, at a relatively early stage of the war, actually, back, away back, 1940, 41, was able to, were able to access the the so-called secret codes of the German U-boats, and then from that into other forms of communication. And that gave the Allies vital insight into what the enemy was doing so that they could respond to that, so they could be prepared for that, so they could counterattack. and and where they were and what they were doing. Intel, the word that sometimes you hear nowadays, and the battle against terrorism or against other forces within our society, is seen as almost being as vital uh, as having frontline equipment. Indeed, the, the, the talk is that the current review of our armed forces will... College armed forces spend more money on electronic warfare and all that type of technology rather than the tanks and the kind of heavy, cumbersome equipment that they used to have. Intel, that insight into what's going on in the enemy camp. Now, if that's true in the battlefield and in the challenges of the global village in which we live, so it's also true against, in in a spiritual term, we continually say this, our battle's not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers of this present age. You may remember, and if you can't, we'll go onto the church website and look back to a sermon way back. It was at the end of May, beginning of June, when the whole Black Lives Matter thing and everything, remember? And and we spent a, a Sunday morning or a time looking at some verses from Ephesus Ephesians, um, about what God says there, about spiritual warfare and spiritual battle, and about the challenges that are brought to us because of of, of that reality that we face. We need to be aware of the schemes of the evil one. Not from Ephesians, it's actually from Corinthians. (laughs) I remember that. It's from Corinthians. And and so I encourage you to look back and to listen to that talk. um, Way back, as I say, it was maybe May or the beginning of June. We need to be aware, so that we're not unaware, so that we're not caught out. We need that in t- insight. That's what Gideon is given here. He goes down. He is concerned, let's be honest. Uh, and the Midianites and the Malekites have settled in the valley that thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand in the seashore. Things are pretty daunting. And I think it's important to say this. Gideon, and indeed any leader of God's people, is not meant to be gallous, Not meant to be cocky. Not meant to be arrogant. That's the very opposite. We're actually only too well aware of the challenges we face and the problems. And yes, that will cause us at times to be fearful, concerned. But instead of allowing that to cripple us and to lock us into that, it causes us to look to God and to listen to him and then to be obedient to what he has to say. And Gideon does that. He is concerned. So he takes his friend. And again, there's a whole principle here of having a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ that we journey with. And, and, and that's part of that kind of confirming team that God wants us to be a part of. And he goes down with his friend. And what does he hear? Well, he hears something which is amazing. He hears the, the, a, a midnight talking about this dream, this barley bread that came tumbling into the camp uh, the bread, uh, a symbol of the fruitfulness of the land of Canaan, the fruitfulness that Israel was meant to have entered into, fruitfulness that was being robbed from the Israelites because of the Middonites. It's a sign of God's blessing, of God's bounty, of God's presence, of God's provision. This barley bread comes tumbling into the midnight camp and it strikes strikes the tent with such force that the tent overturns and collapses. And even more so, the friend in this tent responds and says, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon." son of Joash the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. The story of Gideon has already gone around. Perhaps it's the stories from chapter 6 that we spoke about last Sunday when he pulled down that totem pole to Baal or whatever. His reputation has gone ahead. How vital it is that when people speak about the church or about Christian people it's about people who are, you know, ready for action, who engage with things, who do things, who don't dither but actually deliver that is so vital, that can cause, the Spirit of God can use that to prepare people who are not believers to at least respond and to think about the claims of God, rather than the church which is cowed down, locked in, and filled with fear. The story of Gideon spread round, and so already, already God's scheme is at work. There's already a spirit of apprehension amongst this myriad of people. And we read that when Gideon hears the dream and its interpretation, he bows down and worship. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. How we need to know, and how I pray that more of us would be caught up with this. Even in the midst of the challenges we face, we see this is the Lord's work. He's in church. He has a strategy. He will bring his people through. He will bring forth a victory and he will show up and reveal the paucity and poverty of so many within our society who boast of their wisdom, their knowledge, and their ability to say we should be doing this, that, or the other. And he will reveal that as lacking in the anointing and blessing of God, but actually as being ultimately destructive and deceitful. God is at work, he's moving. And Gideon is filled with a sense of awe, a holy awe, a holy fear about the living God. And so he goes back, lastly, he goes up to the camp, verse. 15. Get up, the Lord has given the midnight camp into your hands. Dividing the three hundred men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told me, follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets, smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow, they shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And while each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. And when the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. Just before lockdown, I was... Away for a, a swim and, and a sauna up at, up at Hamilton, I think it was the Water Palace. And a younger fellow started chatting to me and he said, I recognise you. And it turned out he recognised me as the minister at Park Church. He had come along to the church. He'd actually been brought along by, by Ian Castles to our holiday club in the past and he spoke warmly of that. But he'd also been at the church when he was in the uniformed organisations, the BB, I think it was. And he'd come along and he said, Oh, I still remember Remembrance Sunday. And he actually made reference to this a jar with a candle inside. This is the surviving jar from a Remembrance Day service held, oh, way back in the late 2000s, perhaps early 2010s. And over the two, the every other year when we had the youth organisations in the church, we, we we acted out some of these great stories of faith from the Old Testament. And he remembered holding a jar with a night light, I think it was, inside, and, and, and a paper trumpet, or some other thing. I don't have a trumpet anymore. And, and as we recounted the story of Gideon and the 300, and of how they won that great battle. And can you see God's strategy here? Downsizing the army, giving information as to what's going on amongst the enemy, and his ultimate purpose is to fill them with fear, and to cause them to actually, end of the day, they actually end up killing themselves, uh, in a sense, rather than the Israelites having to do all the fighting. Um, But he does that very cleverly. They've got these candles, these jars, they've got these trumpets. They're strategically placed up in the hill country, round the valley, the middle watch of the night, the darkest time of night. And yet there's that spirit of fear within the camp. And they have all these jars and all these trumpets. They've got all this stuff, all this noise, all these lights. And these trumpets are blowing. And, and these candles, these torches are waved about. And the jars are smashed. Can you imagine the sound echoing round the valley? Can you imagine the confusion that that caused in the camp? The, the idea there wasn't just 300, but there was myriads of people round about, outside, just waiting to attack the Midianite camp. God is wise. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. But the foolishness of God is wiser than the greatest wisdom of men. And whatever else God is doing, that's one of the things he's wanting to show our society in the West at the present time through this whole COVID-19 carry-on. His ways are not our ways, but the wisdom of God is greater. The foolishness of God, in a sense, what might appear to be foolish is greater than the best wisdom of men. And he does that because we're meant to fear him. But when we don't fear him, like the midnights, we're filled with fear. Things happen. We begin to panic. That's what took place. And we're told in verse 22, the army fled. Time has gone. I can't read on the whole story. Read it on for yourselves. Heads are brought back. Literally heads roll. And the heads of Oreb and Zeba are brought back by, to Gideon by, by some of the troops. Heads will roll as a result of this virus. Those who think they're in positions, eventually, some of them will be shown up for not being as wise as they thought they were, and actually perhaps causing more trouble, more damage, more hassles than actually we needed to have. Time will tell. Every confidence that God's ways will be revealed. His wisdom will be shown. And God's church needs to be in the front line. Taking what might appear to be nothing. Foolishness. A trumpet. A jam jar a candle, and yet God's using that which appears to be foolish to confound the wise." There are principles here that are meant to encourage us, brothers and sisters. There are principles here. The story is given to us so that we might not be filled with fear, so that we might be confident, so that even as we look into the the complex regulations and semi-quarantines and everything else that are going on, that we can discern with the wisdom of God how we can navigate through that. Yes, we're to be harmless as doves, but we're also to be wise as serpents of how we navigate through all these things in order to ensure that God's people are still built up, God's name is still honoured, and God's people are equipped for the spiritual battles we're called to enter, enter into. God's word given to refresh, to encourage, and to restore our souls. The words of a hymn that reminds us, yes, we are part of the church of God, but we're also like a mighty army. The hymn writers writes in Onward Christian Soldiers, like a mighty army moves the church of God. And then in the hymn, who is on the Lord's side, these words as we close, let them be our prayer in a sense. Fierce may be the conflict, strong may be the foe, but the king's own army none can overthrow. Round his standard raging, victory is secure, for his truth unchanging, makes the triumph sure. Joyfully enlisting, by thy grace divine, we are on the Lord's side, saviour, we are thine. Chosen to be soldiers in an alien land. Chosen, called, and faithful for our captain's band. In the service royal, let us not grow cold. Let us be right, loyal, noble, true, and bold. Master, thou wilt keep us by thy grace divine. Always on the Lord's side. Saviour, always thine. This is the word of the Lord.